Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts as we resume our study of Acts this Lord's Day. It's been uh, a few weeks, actually a little over a month, since we turned our pages to Acts. And so I want to uh, remind you of where we are in this book and, and just overall what we've been looking at. Uh, if you're not familiar or not been with us in our study, the, the book of Acts follows the Gospels. And in the Gospels you have uh, the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gospels end with Christ giving a great commission for the disciples and His followers to go to the world with this new Gospel message. Uh, to help people understand that religion will not save them, uh, that a set of rules, a set of laws won't save them, that they can only be truly saved when they acknowledge that they are indeed sinners and repent and turn from that sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in His substitutionary death on the cross for their sin. And so in the book of Acts, as it unfolds, that's the message that you have going out. It goes throughout Jerusalem, and then it spreads from there to Judea and Samaria, and then throughout the Roman Empire. And along the way, we've learned about lives that have been changed, primarily uh, the life of a man named Saul, who we also know as Paul. Paul, when we meet him in Acts, is actually persecuting the church. Now, he is a, a Jewish man who is intent on putting an end to the Christian faith. And in his desire to persecute Christians, he goes after them to imprison them. And we even see him witnessing the death of some. But then God intervenes in Paul's life in a dramatic way, calls him to faith in Christ. And now where we've been in the book of Acts for our latter part of our study has been Paul going throughout the Roman Empire sharing the gospel. But he had this desire to get back to Jerusalem. God had placed that desire in his heart. In fact, he often would refer to the Spirit compelling him and calling him to go back to Jerusalem. Well, when he gets to Jerusalem, He's not met with a very good reception. In fact, most of the people there that he thinks will be open to hearing his testimony and how the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ are not open to it at all. In fact, they get rather angry at him. Uh, they make a lot of false accusations about him. And where we left off about a month ago was in the midst of these false accusations. They're actually threatening to kill Paul. And so then in steps a leader from the Roman military. He's known as the Tribune. And the Tribune steps in, protects Paul's life by arresting him and throwing him in the barracks. And yet, he's very curious to know, why are people so upset at what Paul is preaching? And that's where we pick up this Lord's Day. At this moment where the Tribune wants to understand these things, and so he's going to ask Paul to come and share about what's happened in his life before a religious council of the Jewish leaders we know of historically as the Sanhedrin. And so that's where we're going to pick up there at the end of Acts 22 and verse 30. And I'm going to read through most of 23 to give us a picture of what's taking place here for our time and for our study today. And because we believe this is truly the Word of God and it should be revered as such, if you're able, if you would stand as I read it for us this morning. <clears throat> Acts 22, beginning in verse 30. This is what God's Word says to us. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. 
And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And when we are ready to, and, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush, heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, "Take this, you, this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him." So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. And as he, he has something to say to you, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though we are going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. If you would, pray along with me. Father God, we have just read an account that may seem a bit strange and unusual. 
This is not the court system. This is not what we are familiar with in our culture today. And yet, this is what happened to Paul. And from it, Lord, we trust there's something we can learn. And so, Lord, would you open up our minds to understand and our hearts to believe in the gospel of Christ as we study this word today we ask in Jesus name amen you may be seated well if you've been with us in this study there are two things that have become very clear in these latter chapters that we've looked at in Acts one that's become clear is that Paul was convinced that God was calling him to go to Jerusalem. And so he would say things about being persuaded or or being compelled. Uh, Acts 20.16 says he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. He, He knew through the prompting of the Holy Spirit that he was to go to Jerusalem. But the second thing that becomes apparent is that Paul was going to suffer in Jerusalem that he was going there in order to suffer. Now, he didn't know the particulars of what would happen, but he knew he was going to suffer there, and others did as well. And so every time Paul talked about going to Jerusalem, that was met with resistance by the people he was around. And so we had that one encounter we looked at that you may remember when a prophet named Agabus actually said to Paul, Listen, take your belt off, now tie it around your, your hands and tie it around your feet. Now, that might seem a little unusual if I were to tell you today. Now, take off your belt and do that. But, but what Agabus was doing was he saying, Paul, that this is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. You're going to be bound. You're going to be arrested. And Paul, you may very well die for the sake of the gospel. And so over and over again, as Paul's talking about this call to go to Jerusalem, that's met with resistance by the Christians around him who are saying, well, if you go you're going to suffer. And all that culminates in Acts 21, 13, where Paul says this, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul knew that going to Jerusalem meant that he was going to suffer. Paul knew suffering was coming for him. He knew when it was coming, and he knew the city it was coming in. And that's where you and I today are very different than the Apostle Paul. We know, in general, that we're going to suffer. We know, in general, that this will not be an easy life. We know that we will face tragedies. We know we will suffer. But we don't know when. And we don't know where. And we don't know how. And yet, we we know that it's going to come. And so my hope today is that as we walk through this passage, that God might better prepare us to face suffering firmly rooted in our faith in Christ and to remind us that that He has a sovereign plan even for suffering that takes place in our life. We'll begin there with the first point in your notes, and one that I've already mentioned, number one there. Suffering, Suffering often comes when we least expect it. Suffering often comes when we least expect it. You see, most of us don't have the benefit that the Apostle Paul had here. He he was expecting to suffer. He knew suffering was going to come. Now, he said to others, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but he knew he was going to Jerusalem to suffer. You and I don't know those things. We don't know what tragedies we're going to face in 2016. 
Uh, there are many things that happened in 2015. We, we didn't know they were coming. And I think God is gracious in not allowing us to know. And there are certainly times that you and I have experienced when we've said, well, well I wish I knew this was going to happen. I wish I'd been better prepared. But imagine what life would be like if we knew ahead of time about every tragedy, about every moment of suffering, about every trial and every pain that would be in our life. Uh, imagine what that would be like. It would be overwhelming. And in fact, I think if we really had a life like that, it would steal all joy from our lives because all we would think about was the next pain and the next suffering that was coming. And we would tear ourselves apart if we couldn't do something to stop that suffering from coming. And so I think God is gracious here and not allowing us to know what's coming tomorrow. And I think even for Paul here, Paul didn't know exactly what was coming. In fact... I think what happens here for Paul is not exactly what he expected to happen. Now, Paul knew he was going to suffer in Jerusalem, but he also was excited about going to Jerusalem. And you might ask, well, why? <laughs> why would you be excited about going somewhere if you knew you were going to suffer there? Well, we know one of the reasons he was excited was that Paul, as he had gone throughout the Roman Empire, churches had been giving an offering. Uh, much like we collected an offering today. These churches were collecting offerings specifically for those that were in need at the church in Jerusalem. And Paul was carrying with him this offering. And that's, that's something he was excited about. He was bringing them this gift from all these other churches. But that's not all he was bringing. Uh, Paul was also bringing with him the celebration of how the gospel had gone out to the Gentiles. And he was bringing with him the gospel itself. See, remember where Paul came from. Paul was a religious leader in Jerusalem who was going throughout the Roman Empire to end the Christian faith. God brings him to faith. He shares the faith with many. Now he gets to go back to Jerusalem. And I think Paul's excited to go back because he's going to have the opportunity to talk about his faith and to share the gospel. But that's not exactly what happens, is it? In fact, we read in the book of Acts, that when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he immediately meets there with James and with the leaders, these, these Christians in the early church, and he's sharing with them about all that God's doing among the Gentiles, and immediately they interrupt him. And they interrupt him with accusations, false accusations. And they start to question the sincerity of Paul's faith. And specifically, they bring into question whether or not Paul has just neglected and forgotten and forsaken his Jewish heritage. And so in the midst of an opportunity here for Paul to celebrate the gospel, they're telling him, well, Paul, what you really need to do is go to the temple and make an offering, and then people will know you're still religious. Well, Paul does this, I think in part, considering what's happened at other temples he's gone to. See, Paul, at each city he would arrive at, he would go to the temple and he would preach the gospel. And while there was resistance, there was also many people who responded in faith. And so I think Paul may have gone to the temple that day thinking, okay, here's another opportunity to share a gospel witness. But if you were here when we studied this passage, you know that's not what happens when he goes to the temple. More false accusations are made. In fact, at this point, an angry mob forms, and they're just going to rip Paul to pieces. But this Roman official steps in and saves Paul's life. 
And so then as they're leaving, Paul stops them to take that opportunity to share the gospel. And he starts to do that, but again, it's interrupted. And as soon as he starts talking about God telling him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the crowd gets even more angry, and then he's taken off to the barracks. And it's at that point that I wonder what Paul might have been wrestling with. I wonder what was going through Paul's mind as he sat there in the barracks that night. I wonder if he knew that the day was coming when he would stand before the Sanhedrin. I wonder if he was spending time preparing to share the gospel with the Sanhedrin. And yet, when he gets to the Sanhedrin, he doesn't get to share the gospel there either. Notice what happens in our text. Chapter 23 there, verse 1. Paul goes before this religious council. Uh, the tribune wants to know what's going on, so he takes him before the religious council. He gets up, and I think what Paul's about to do is Paul's about to preach. He's probably been working on this sermon. He was probably in the barracks thinking about this sermon. And notice how much of this sermon Paul gets out of his mouth. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. One sentence. Now I realize... For some of you this morning, you, you would probably count yourself blessed if I preached a sermon in one sentence. <laughs> you know, well, that was the best sermon you ever preached, you know. Go back to church there every week. But it wasn't Paul's plan to preach a, a one-sentence sermon. I think it was Paul's plan to probably follow up this statement with how he had sought to live his life in a good conscience, but he had found that the law couldn't save him. How he'd found that no matter how hard he tried that the law wasn't how he could find salvation, that he could only find salvation in Christ Jesus. And then like he's done before, to develop and open up to them the, the plan of salvation and the gospel and how they too can come to faith in Christ. And yet Paul gets out one sentence before he's interrupted, before he's falsely accused, and before this gospel opportunity turns in, I think, to... A disappointment. And then again, he's taken back to the barracks. Before he goes, there's this dissension that arises between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I think perhaps Paul here is thinking, well, maybe, maybe if I can take the attention off of myself for a moment and put it on them and their differences, then I can come back around to the gospel. But that never happens. As these two groups start to argue with each other, then the attention turns back onto Paul, and he's back in that situation where they want to take his life. And so again, this tribune takes him and hauls him off back to the barracks. And, and in that moment, I think perhaps we and Paul share a common experience of things not going quite like we expected them to go of thinking we'd have this great opportunity that, that turned into a time of suffering. See, friends, one thing that, that you will learn if you've not already in the Christian life is that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to avoid it, suffering will find you. And many times it will certainly come when you least expect it. A great book that I would commend to you along these lines is by Pastor Tim Keller entitled Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he opens the book with this thought, and I think it's a very good one. It says, no matter what precautions we take, and no matter how well we have put together a good life, 
no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy and wealthy, comfortable with family and friends, and successful in our career, something will inevitably ruin it. And what we find in the Christian life is that something is suffering. And it so often comes when we don't expect it. And so part of the Christian life then is is understanding how can we both prepare for it and what do we do in the midst of it. And the importance of our understanding what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ in the midst of our suffering and our pain. And that's where I want to take us in this next point there in your outline. The understanding that suffering is unbearable if we are not certain that the Lord is with us. Suffering is unbearable if we're not certain that the Lord is with us. We see here a picture of Paul that we've seen before. Paul is suffering. But in this moment, we also see that Paul is alone. And many of the other instances, Paul's with companions, Paul's with others, Paul's being accused or he's suffering in the presence of other believers. But here in Acts 23, we find Paul alone in these barracks and suffering. And I wonder what was going through his mind at that point. I wonder if Paul was tempted in the way that we're tempted in those moments. Because often those moments of suffering, often those moments when life has not turned out like we expect it, we are, we are tempted to question if God even cares. We're tempted to question if God even exists. And we're tempted to feel like we are all alone. I, I don't know if that's what Paul was thinking, but I know that's what a lot of us have thought in our thinking. And I think in the midst of that, we can receive encouragement from what happens to Paul because in the barracks, by himself, he realizes he's not by himself. We read here in verse 11, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That, that, that phrase he says to Paul, Take courage. That statement that Luke makes, Jesus was standing there. It's a reminder to us that in the midst of Paul's suffering, he is not alone. It's a reminder to us that in the midst of your suffering and mine as followers of Christ, we are not alone. And oftentimes, God has a way of working in the midst of our pain and suffering in such a way that removes many things from our lives to show us what we truly desperately need. And what we truly desperately need, friends, is faith in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, in that same book on pain and suffering, says this, You don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And what we find here in Paul's life is he's in a moment when Jesus is all he has. But friends, Jesus is all he needs. And the same is true for us today. And so, in the trial that you are in are the ones that are coming, are the ones that you have been through. The Word is the same for you and I as it was for Paul in that lonely 
Barak, take courage. You realize that, that that is a phrase that is reserved uniquely for the Lord Jesus. He's the only one that uses it in the New Testament. Take courage. It means have faith. Stand firm. As a reminder, Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 9. And when he's talking to a bedridden paralytic who left himself, couldn't do anything, he couldn't get out of that bed, he couldn't walk, he's completely helpless. And Jesus says to him, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Later in that same chapter in Matthew 9, 22, he's speaking to a woman. She has been suffering through a 12-year-long hemorrhage. And in the midst of her suffering, Jesus says to her, Take courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. A few chapters later in Matthew, we read about that instance that many of you are familiar with, Matthew 14. The, the disciples are there in a boat. Uh, they're scared. Uh, they don't know what's going to happen. They're, they're frightened. There's a storm going on in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to them, Take courage. Do not be afraid. In John 16.33, in the upper room, on the night of His crucifixion, Jesus says to His disciples, In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In every one of these instances, Jesus uses this unique phrase to remind His followers that they weren't alone in their suffering. That He was there with them. And because He was there with them, they could stand courageously in the midst of whatever it was that life threw their way. And so friends, that's a good reminder for us today. That no matter what happens to you and I, if we are rooted in Christ, our suffering, while it may feel unbearable, it is bearable. Not because of who we are but because of who Jesus is. And He's the Jesus who said, Come to Me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. And we find that rest in Him because He, he, he takes that burden and he, he lifts it off of us so that it's not unbearable anymore. But if we don't have Christ, if we don't know Christ, well, that suffering is unbearable. And what we find often in suffering is people will either go one way or the other. It will either drive them deeper in their faith, or it will drive them away from their faith. We see this all the time. In his book, Night, Eli Weisel described one of the most horrible chapters in the history of our world. He wrote about his experiences in the Holocaust. Eli was a teenager when... Hitler's rule began. And as a teenager, as a young Jewish man, he and his family were placed in a train and they were taken off to what would later be referred to as a death camp. Uh, that would be the first of many death camps that young Eli would go to. But his first stop would be one of the more famous for us historically. He would go to Auschwitz. And there at Auschwitz, Eli would witness things that are horrible for us to even read about. He would witness death. He would witness the murder of his own mother. 
and his baby sister. He would witness families being torn apart. He would even write in his book about how he would witness people who, at the brink of starvation, would kill one another for a loaf of bread. But nothing would compare to what he would witness one evening as he was placed on a train and he was taken to another camp. And as he got closer and closer to that camp, he could see billowing clouds of black smoke coming from ovens. And as he got to that camp, he soon realized that those ovens were filled with the bodies of people who were being burned alive. Eli would write this. Never shall I forget that night, seven times cursed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath the silent blue sky. Never shall I forget that silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Eli would go on to write about how that was the night that he lost his faith in God. And that was the night that he felt utterly and completely alone. But Eli's experience would not be the only one that would be recorded in a book. Another book would come out by another person who was taken from their home during this Nazi rule, who was taken to these death camps. That book entitled The Hiding Place by Corey Tim Boom. And Corey would write about how she too watched death and horror. How she watched her own sister die in the camp. How she watched similar things that Eli had watched. And yet, her account is so different because in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the death, she would write about her hope. She would write about her faith in Jesus Christ. She would write about how she would gather together with other prisoners in that death camp and they would open up a smuggled-in Bible and have a Bible study there in the midst of the death, in the midst of the horror. She would write about how this experience didn't pull her farther from her faith, but drove her deeper in it. And she would say this, I discovered that there is not a pit where God's love is not deeper still. Two different people with the same experience responded two different ways. The question for us this Lord's Day is, is when we suffer, because friends, we, we will, and some of you today, you, you are, but when we suffer, how will we respond? Will we respond like Eli and collapse in discouragement and turn away from God and doubt the existence of God and say, God, where are you? God, do you even care? Or like Corey Tim Boom, will it drive us in the midst of our suffering and pain deeper in our faith to a point where we realize we have nothing left but Jesus. But all we need is Jesus. See, suffering has a way of pushing us to one of those places. And which place we go is determined in where our faith lies this Lord's Day. And if our faith lies in Jesus Christ, then friends, we need to be encouraged. Because do you remember what his very last words to his disciples were? 
That great commission in Matthew 28. We, we focus on that so much when we talk about evangelism and missions and going to the world. But do you remember the very last thing that Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know what that means? Look around. The age hasn't ended yet. And that means that Jesus is still with us. And Jesus promises to remain with us until all things come to an end. And I realize there are times in life when we suffer when it feels like everything's coming to an end. But it's not over yet. And Jesus makes the promise until it's all said and done, He is there with us. And that's why believers like Corey Tim Boom could write, there is no pit where God's love is not deeper still. And when we grasp that, when we understand that, it it doesn't mean that the suffering is pleasant. (laughs) And it certainly doesn't mean that we grab onto some cultural cliche like turn that frown upside down and we'll just be happy. But it means that when we suffer, we are able then to respond to this instruction Jesus gives and we're able to take courage and we're able to have heart because we realize we're not by ourselves. He's right there with us. So I was reading these accounts. I remember an account I read years ago, also during the Holocaust during one of the death camps, when one of the Nazi guards had dragged one of the prisoners who was close to death, and he had thrown him just in a, in a disgusting pit of muck, told him just to clean it all up. And as this man close to dying was just shoveling this muck and cleaning up this mess, that guard looked to him and he said, Where is your God now? That man looked up, barely able to speak, and said, He is right here with me. Friends, wherever you are, and however bad it might feel, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to hold on to that. He is right there with you. He promises never to leave you or forsake you. And when you you grasp that, when you hold on to that, when you take courage in that, then you realize, God's got a plan for all these things. Again, we, we don't know it ahead of time. I'm glad we don't. But we can trust that He does. And He's sovereign over it. And that's the last point there in your outline. We can have courage in the midst of suffering because God is sovereign. And we see that sovereignty in what happens next with Paul. Now remember, Paul was probably at the pit of discouragement. He thought he was going to go to Jerusalem and share the gospel. He knew he was going to suffer. Every time he starts to share the gospel, he's interrupted, he's interrupted, he's interrupted, he's in prison, he's threatened, people are trying to kill him. The Lord himself comes to Paul and says, Take courage, Paul. And so you can imagine, Paul's probably, he, he's probably excited now. He, he's courageous now. And so what's going to happen now? More people are going to try to kill him. This group of 40, Luke tells us, these 40 Jews, they get together, and they're serious about this. They make an oath. They say, listen, we're not going to drink or eat until Paul is dead. And that, that is a serious oath. And then they go to the council and they tell the council, listen, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. And so you send to the, to the tribune and have him brought here, but he's not going to make it here because we're going to ambush him and we're going to take Paul out. We're, this, that, that's our plan. That's man's plan. Paul's done with. 
But as we often see, God's plan was different. (laughs) And friends, do do you see the providence of God in this passage? Do you see the sovereign hand of God here? Or, Or do you think that it's just by chance that a young man would overhear this secret, this secret plan who just so happened to be Paul's nephew. <laughs> now, that's not by chance. That's in the providential plan of God that he places Paul's nephew there to hear this secret plan and then go tell Paul and then for him to go and tell the tribune and for him to listen to him and then notice how all this ends up in this passage. Paul the prisoner leaves Jerusalem looking a lot more like Paul the king. He is guarded by almost 500 soldiers as he leaves Jerusalem. As we see that, we are are reminded that God's plans are often very different than man's plans. And, And we're reminded in light of God's plans, if man's plans are not God's plans, then man's plans will always fail. And we are not nearly as in control as we think we are. And God is. Paul's going to suffer more. Paul's eventually going to die for his faith, but not in this timing. And so this, this plan, that this oath to kill Paul, it's not going to succeed because that's not God's plan. Luke doesn't tell us, but I wonder what happened to those 40 men. <laughs> We're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. I bet one of them made her drink something. I wonder who the first one was to go, well, yeah, looks like God had a different plan. I wonder maybe if even in that, God used that to bring them to an understanding that he was truly sovereign and that his plans would always triumph. So we're reminded in Paul's suffering, even in the midst of his suffering, that God is in total control. And because of that, Paul could take courage. And that reminds you and I today that in the midst of the suffering you're experiencing now, in the midst of the suffering that you have experienced in the past, in the midst of the suffering that is to come, God is in complete control. And because of that, then we can face that suffering courageously, maybe not joyfully, and certainly not with a smile, but we can face it courageously, rooted in our faith in Christ, Trusting in our faith in Christ and understanding in that moment when Jesus is all we have. Jesus is all we need. And I hope that serves as an encouragement to you today. It certainly has for me time and time again in my life. And it certainly has in the lives of so many. I was reminded of one just this week from Pastor Stephen Davey. Pastor Davey is the the pastor of the church that Sandy and I attended in college, this pastor who married us, we're still in contact with him, and got an email from him this week that mentioned a man who was involved in the church over 20 years ago when Sandy and I were there, a leader in the church, a guy named Dennis. And pastor Davey wrote to share about what had happened to Dennis. And Dennis has suffered for years from a chronic condition, and And one night, the phone rings, and Pastor Davey rushes to the ER, and there he finds that Dennis's condition had gotten far worse, and that he was dying, and the doctors had to put him on life support just to keep him alive. 
But at this point, they said, there, there, there's no hope for him. And all of a sudden, suffering and tragedy just, just had hit this family. And Pastor Davis shared with us about how he sat there in that hospital room and he counseled that family and he, he prayed for that family. And even in the midst of it, they were able to talk to him about Dennis's funeral. And they started to make plans for his funeral. And they had already made arrangements with the doctors. They were going to keep Dennis on life support for about 12 hours, just long enough for his family and friends to come into the ER and, and say their final goodbyes, and then they were going to disconnect the life support. And so Pastor David shared about how they said their final goodbyes, and they prayed, and he and the family left. The next day, his phone rang. The family, Dennis said, he woke up. <laughs> he was hungry. He wanted something to eat and drink. In the moments before the nurses came in to disconnect him from the life support, all of a sudden they, they could hear a murmur and they could hear life. And all of a sudden he rose and he lived. And within weeks, Dennis was back at work. And Pastor Davey jokingly said that they don't call him Dennis anymore. They call him Lazarus because <laughs> he raised from the dead. But, but he said this, and this is what I want to leave you with said, you know, the most amazing thing was not that Dennis didn't die. It's what the nurses shared happened right before they were going to disconnect him from life support. See, as they were in there making their preparation, looking through their checklist, they, they could hear a murmur. And as they got closer and closer to Dennis, they could hear there was repetition in it. And then as they started to disconnect things, they could hear that he was actually speaking and he was saying something he was actually singing something over and over again. He was continuing in the hallelujah course. And there in that bed, prepared to die, this man laid, and with his last breath he was saying, and he shall reign forever and ever. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Over and over and over again. And that's what Pastor Davey marveled at. Because, friends, that's the mark of what it means to stand firm in the midst of suffering and to take courage. Because that is the truth. He will reign forever and ever. And in the midst of our pain and suffering, if we are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, my hope and prayer is that we might sing that hallelujah chorus as well. Not... Turn that frown upside down. Not it's all good. Not we'll just be happy. But in the pain and the suffering and the muck to recognize Christ is right there with us. And because of that we can take courage. And because of that we too can sing. He shall reign forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. If you would pray with me. Father God we... We do not know tomorrow. And we certainly don't know the next day, Lord. We, we have made resolutions coming into a new year, but we have no idea what this year holds. We don't know what it holds for our world, for our nation, for, for our families, for our lives. But we know the one who holds it. And so may our, our faith rest firmly, firmly in you today. God, I, I pray for people here who, who are suffering today that you would help them 
to be rooted in Christ and, and to take courage and testify in the midst of that. And to, to be able to sing that hallelujah chorus. Not because we're happy about our circumstances, but because we're rooted in Christ. Lord, I, I pray for those who have lost so much that they would see in their faith that, that they have Christ and that nothing can rob Christ from us. Nothing can snatch us out of Your hand. And Christ says, He'll never leave us or forsake us. So Father, would You help our song in the midst of suffering to be the same? To remember that Christ will reign forever and ever. Christ will reign forever and ever. And that all glory belongs to You, Lord. May that be the song today and every day from Your people. And Lord, would you empower us to sing that song. Lord, I pray for any here who can't sing that, who, who finds suffering unbearable because they're not rooted in Christ. And perhaps they have a, a religious appearance like the, the high priest we read about in this passage, but on the inside, Lord, it's, it's rotten. They don't know you. They're, they're lost. God, I pray through the power of your Spirit that you might draw them to repentance and faith in Christ, that they too might be able to sing Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. All I have and all I need is Jesus Christ. Lord, help that to be the song we sing this and each Lord's Day. And for, Lord, the suffering that will come in these coming days and weeks and years, help us, Lord, to be prepared for it and rooted in Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.